This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here with Rebecca Ford. Hi. And Rebecca, you are here to tell me about your interview that is uh, this week's interview episode with Sue Hugh, the creator of Pachinko, one of the many uh, kind of A-plus quality shows that are out there right now as Emmy season gets into swing. And you have been a big Pachinko fan, I think, even since before you saw it. You knew that this was going to be a big deal, right? Yeah, I was a a big fan of the book, as many, many people were. Obviously, it was a huge bestseller, but it also was such an epic story. I just was really curious how they would pull this off. You know, the characters obviously speak in Korean and Japanese and in English. And it's sort of this sweeping multi-generational story. So it seemed really big, even for a television series. So yes, I definitely had my eye on it as it was in development. And it lived up to your expectations, right? It did. It's really, really good. They really pulled it off. It's It feels big and it's beautifully shot. It, you know, they shot in Korea and they have a, this phenomenal cast. I, I I really think they did it and it was not an easy feat. So it was definitely great to talk to Sue about it. Yeah, I assume that's something you got into about um, just how you pull something like that off. Yeah, she. it was interesting because she talked a lot about pitching the project to buyers because it didn't have a studio when it first was going out to the town. And and she said most people really understood that they were going to do this um, as authentically as possible and have the cast speak Korean and Japanese and shoot abroad and all of that. And I was actually really impressed that people understood that this is what this show was going to be. And obviously, they ended up going with Apple um, eventually. And it seems like really got the support to make the show as big and bold as, as they wanted to. Well, and like little did they know that Squid Game, I think, would really uh, blast the doors open in terms of foreign language shows really succeeding in the United States. So it's um, the, the timing couldn't be better for them. Yeah, it's interesting because when they were pitching it, you know, Parasite hadn't even done what it did. Oh, wow. And obviously Squid Game wasn't around yet. So they didn't have anything to sort of say, well, this can work. You know, we, we're seeing it work now. And, you know, Hollywood's not known for being 
big on the risk taking, um, <laughs> especially when we're talking about a diverse story and an international story. So it's really actually impressive that it got greenlit um, without sort of having those other examples ahead of it. And I do think the timing is really perfect for the show to come out. Uh, well, I'm excited to hear what Sue Hugh has to say about it. So let's listen to your interview. Today, I'm joined by writer and creator of Pachinko, Sue Hugh. Thank you, Sue, for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about the show. It's airing now, so everyone can check it out on Apple TV+. I would love to kind of start with what was the pitch you brought out to the town and, and people you wanted involved with this project? Because this is such an epic book, and I can imagine sort of explaining it wasn't the easiest thing. So how did you sort of explain what you wanted to do with this story? Well, firstly, I broke the rule that they tell you in pitching, which is you're supposed to get it to 20, 25 minutes. And no matter what I did, I couldn't do it with this pitch. Um, I think our pitch, my pitch was 45 minutes. And I first started off by playing a so-called family album visual presentation. And I was so inspired by this one episode in Mad Men. And I created a family photo album. And I really wanted to set the stage and bring the listener and the buyers into this mindset of, you're not watching a TV show. You're watching a generational saga. To think of your parents, think of your grandparents. And that was really important because that was my approach to this show as I thought about my parents and my grandparents and I really wanted that to pass on in the experience. And after that, it's a big story. I never believe in selling buyers is something that I don't want to do. I also don't believe in fooling buyers into buying something they think is different. I really wanted them to know what this show was. And how did everyone react? Because this was being pitched, you know, before a lot of global television had had worked as we've seen in the last you know year or so with an American audience. So what was it like? It was incredible. I mean, I have to say, when we first started this process about thinking about how to bring this show to buyers, I was read. I was no one's going to buy this. Who's going to buy a show that's told in three languages that's going to be filmed mostly outside of America? This is before Minari, before Squid Game, right? Before Parasite. And then in that pitch, in our very first pitch, I think it was either effects or showtime, I forget who it was, but there are tears. And once I saw those tears, I knew it's like, there's something here. And in every buyer's meeting that we had, it was a really emotional experience, including for me. I don't think I made it through one pitch without crying. And to feel that just resonate with everyone was really emotional. Mm. And how did you end up deciding that Apple was the right home for it? You know, I've known Michelle for a while, even before Michelle Lee, who is our creative executive at Apple on this project. And I talk about how in that particular meeting with Apple, I just couldn't even look at her because if I did, I was going to dissolve because she was already so emotional from the first minute. And, you know, afterwards, when we're talking to buyers and you get past dollars and cents, because you always start with dollars and cents. And that's definitely a factor. But once you get past that, you always ask yourself and the executives, like, I'm going to bleed over this. Are you, right? And without a doubt, Michelle was that person. Well, it all worked out because it's now a pretty amazing and beautiful show that's airing. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm curious, what ended up being sort of the biggest challenge about bringing this to life, whether that was the locations or the getting the cast right? Like in retrospect now, what, what was really the hardest part? 
two aspects. Originally, our ambition was to shoot in three countries, Japan, Korea, and Vancouver. Due to the pandemic, we were only able to do Korea and Vancouver. We weren't able to get into Japan. And it was very hard. When people saw this show, I didn't want people to say, there's no Japan in it. Because I think that fidelity and authenticity is so crucial. And it really breaks my heart about the first season. We were able to send a plate shoot at the end because we really need to make sure that Japan was felt. But that was very hard. How do you make that authenticity ring for this? And the language components, um, three languages, not just within the story and within our actors, but even with our filmmaking practice, even with the crew, so many languages. I always like to make the joke, there are more translators on this show than actual actors. And bringing together different ways of making films. Like Korea makes films differently from Japan, which makes differently from America. You know, I remember those first few weeks and you're just thinking like, this is all going to fall apart. Like, this is like, it's just going to be terrible. And then slowly you watch everyone walk in sync with one another. Um, and that was pretty moving. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So... I know you did extensive research for this, and I'm not going to make you go through all of it, but I am curious about something unexpected you learned as you were digging into the research to prepare to make this. I feel like in every juncture in doing the research, my mind was a little bit always blown away by, I think whenever you try to make this come to life in your head, um, you always assume that fiction is going to be more interesting than fact, right? And then just the constant research, there's a million of these stories that can be told. Sunja's story, the story could go on bigger and bigger because the history is pretty vast. And there's so many of these women's stories that have not been yet captured. In terms of actual details, I mean, so much of the Zainichi history I was not familiar with, I'll be honest, before I talked, you know, I knew about colonization, I knew about the Korean occupation, but I didn't really know about the story of the Koreans who went to Japan during the colonized period. So all that was extremely mind-opening. And when would you say during production, you sort of were at your lowest point? Like the point, was there ever a point where you're like, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to make this show the way I want it to. There are two really dark dates. You know, we call those the heart of darkness moments in production. Mm -hmm. Right before we started shooting in Korea, um, and this was in about October, we had this one sort of, big meeting and you know those meetings right you're all around the conference table and then you get la on the phone and it was this feeling of like this show needs more resources i'm not talking about money but just in terms of we're doing a pandemic and with all the languages and it became very clear that the way we make shows in america was not going to work in the way we made shows in korea 
And it really was this moment where everyone just rolled up their sleeves and said, okay, let's figure out a new way. So we synthesized a practice of like, this is how, you know, 80s speak on this set. This is how production designers, art directors work on, you know, and never in my life, if you had said to me that I was going to have to reinvent filmmaking, and you have to, what are you talking about? But just, again, I think as we do more and more of these global shows and bring together more and more cultures, these are more conversations we're going to have about like, how do you do it? How do I do it? My way isn't better than yours. But because there were just so many misunderstandings that kept happening at the beginning and it really hurt me because it was like wait a minute i'm making a show that celebrates you know my homeland and here it is that there's just so many arguments and i didn't know if it was worth it but by the end of the show when you see just how beloved everyone is one another you're like oh it is worth it Mm. you said there were two points what was the other one? Oh, the second point, I think. So when we move, whenever you move to Vancouver and you say goodbye to the first crew and you say hello to another crew, you're like, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to have to learn another crew, you know, crew's name. And then, of course, you fall in love with them as well. Yeah. And you mentioned when we spoke before that uh, when you were casting in Korea, it's not traditional to either audition or have casting, you know, directors. So how did you end up working around that to find a lot of the actors? So that was one thing that was very important to me was auditioning actors. And it was because, you know, I always say it's not about acting talents. It's just about the chemistry. And especially when you're building a family, this is a show about a family, right? So you have to, does this person feel like a mother? Does this person feel like a son? So, you know, in Korea, because of their system, you know, it's a star system. So you can't ask Imino to audition. But when we explain why it is we wanted to do what it was, we have to say, they were all so generous with their time because we had them come back over and over to not only add more scenes, but also to read with different people. And it was a process. And tell me, like, Lee Minho is obviously a huge star in Korea. And, and, and then you have sort of unknown talents like Minha, who's the lead. So were you specifically targeting, making sure you had, you know, a name like him uh, among the cast to sort of bring in that sort of audience? Or did he just fit the part? He just fit the part. And I mean, I think it's to Apple's credit also. I mean, it's the reality of the situation is no one thought that a star was going to anchor a show like this, right? And so we all said the only way a show like this is going to succeed is if the cast, if the acting was just spot on. So no one pressured us to go after names. It's funny, I was re-watching a couple of the episodes before we spoke, and I think that fourth episode is just my favorite and and the most powerful. And I know you mentioned, I think there was a scene in there that is particularly close to you. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that scene? That's also my favorite episode because it was my favorite script. Like, you know, when you're writing and that, I mean, that was especially a script where like, I don't think I stopped crying once, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, the rice making scene was really important, but the most important scene for me was a goodbye scene between Young Jin and Sunja at the train station. And I cried when I read it in the book. You know, I cried when I wrote it. I cr- um, in the editing, it was really hard to edit that scene because the two actors are so extraordinary with one another that in every version that we edited, they all worked. But in the end, I love that Inji, who plays Yangjin, that we went with a version where she doesn't break down, right? Because mm. initially there was a version where she was much more weepy in that scene. But I think her restraint worked so beautifully. So that was a really important scene for me. I know the uh, the rice scene. I just I didn't see myself crying over rice anytime in in the future, but that scene really got to me as well. It's so beautifully done, and the significance of it is so powerful. 
Um, did you always have that planned as sort of a a longer scene that really shows the care that went into making that rice? Well, so in the script, it talks about like first she does, we, it says we were going to film the entire process. So she mm-hmm. first washes the rice, then she pours the water out. So the process was written in the script. But this is where when you have people like Justin Sean and Auntie, his DP, they take words on a paper, right? Because you could have just taken like she washes the rice and you feel her hands in the water. But they could have just filmed it with a neutral eye or with a very different care. But I think because Justin and Auntie especially felt that scene as well, because rice is part of their family history you can really feel that was a personal statement for them as well mm-hmm. and what else about this story did you most personally tie to was it a certain character that you felt you know closest to when you were either reading the book or working on the scripts like where are you most emotionally tied I think Solomon is the most complicated character for me he's also the hardest character to write and that's mm-hmm. because when you think about Solomon, I'm looking to a reflection in so many ways, right? Yeah. is also sometimes a very difficult character to write because, you know, there's a danger of making her too good to be true. Mm. But in terms of like, I feel like the reason why I answered your question this way is because it's always the ones that are most hard to write, who you don't quite have an access point to all the time that you work the hardest in. And the, you know, the scenes that I'm most proud of are the ones that we did with Sunja and Solomon because we see so much in Solomon and because Sunja is the person we so yearn to be, or we so, I so yearn to make sure that Sunja is the character in this show who gets the dignity that she deserves. Mm-hmm. I think a lot about the way this show captures mothers and daughters, you know, both Sunja and her mother, but then also she becomes a mother. And, and I'm curious in the writer's room, how much were those conversations had about how to capture that dynamic so beautifully yeah we talked a lot about you know mothers and like as you said but also about different family patterns and we also talked about just what's the iconography of motherhood right so in episode five that's coming up there is a birth like how do you film a birth first of all a birth is probably the most overdone thing in tv mm-hmm. and films right yeah. so what is our show's language for that that feels both really genuine and sincere but also cinematically exciting and because that was also one of the goals of this show is not just to tell a beautiful story with beautiful performances, but that we also, we wanted to set the bar high. We wanted this to look like no other show on TV. Mm-hmm. So when you have these just very stand, like, iconic moments, like a bird, thinking about how do we reframe that? And we went to some religious imagery of motherhood. Um, how is motherhood depicted over time through centuries and centuries? And it's beautiful. And tell me, you spoke a little bit about Justin Chan, one of the directors, but tell me about um, how the style of the two directors you brought on differed, but still works together in the series. Yeah, when you think about Kolonata and Justin, as you're seeing, they're complete opposites in some most ways. But what was really exciting about their approach to this show is it worked out perfectly because the show has a split in the middle, right? We have the first half, which is Sunjo's years in Korea, being rooted in her motherland. And the second half, she's displaced. So Kogunana brought his just astonishing vision to the first half because it's very composed and beautiful and cinematic. And then Justin brought his visceral nature of filmmaking to the second half, which is more emotion-led. And it just worked out perfectly that that split happened in the middle. Mm. What's it like for you when you watch the show now? I mean, are you watching it on I don't watch it. I don't watch it. (laughs) No, but don't forget, like, I've been editing this for a year now. Yeah, No, more than a year. And 
I still see all the things that we didn't get. I still see, oh, that could have been better. It's just hard for me to see. I'm so proud of this show, but like I've seen it a million times. I don't think I need to see it again. (laughs) But how are you experiencing other people watching it? I mean, what is it like to sort of take in the overall very positive reaction on social media and reviews? Like, what is it like to have it out in the world now? It's so gratifying. That first week, I think I was in shock because you've lived with this for so long and you're wondering, is it worth it? That's the question that has been playing in my head for four years now. Like, is this worth it? Is this worth it? And then to see so many people being touched and moved by what we did, you know, what so many of us worked so hard on, you realize it was worth it. The journey paid off. But also just to see a show like this resonate, period. I just hope more stories like this get their chance. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned last time we spoke that your hope is for four seasons, I think, to tell the whole story. Obviously, nothing's official yet. But how did you know where to sort of end the first season? Oh, I don't know how you could end it any other way besides Sunja selling kimchi for the first time. I mean, to me, that was just, that was, yes. Um, And you can't tell a story like this in one season. It has to be ongoing. It's just too big and too vast. So once I knew, in fact, that was the very first thing I knew. I knew that we're going to end with the kimchi market. And so then work backwards from there. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. You know, I'm curious for you, there's been a lot of discussion about how the show is is quite historic and barrier breaking. But, you know, as a, an Asian American creator, how much responsibility do you feel when you take on a show like this, when you take on telling stories, you know, from the Asian culture? I think it's extremely important to me, but I can't think about it when I'm making it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if I did, then I would feel completely debilitated. I always say, the only way I know how to make TV shows, and maybe it's my limitations, but I can only make shows that I want to watch. You know, so I make shows only for me. And I don't mean to say that selfishly, and I don't mean to say that in terms of ego, because I can't possibly speak for a billion people or even two people. I can only speak for me. What I do hope is that if Pachinko succeeds, that people will see that we are not a risk, right? These stories are not a risk. And to me, that would be amazing. And I, of course, want to bring up before we go the credit sequence, the opening credits, because they're just so wonderful. But tell me how that all came together and and where that idea came from to have it be like it is. So it's written in the scripts. I write Mm. title sequences in the scripts, but originally it was a Rolling Stones song out of time and we couldn't afford the Rolling Stones song. And originally we had to cut the title sequence from our schedule because we were so, it was such a crazy schedule. And we left Korea not having shot it. And then when we got to Vancouver, it was not on the schedule. And I was trying to figure out a way to bring it back to the schedule. There's Sue, there's no two extra days unless you're going to cut other scenes. No, I'm not going to cut other scenes (laughs) from the show. Um, And then finally, a few weeks in, I went to our producer, Richard, and I was like, we need that sequence. And it is a crush to him and to so much of the cast who came in on their days off. And when I say we did it run and gun, we did it run and gun. We didn't have a gaffer. We didn't have key grips. We didn't have our crew. 
and the stereo system was my iPod. Uh, and I would just play different songs for different people. Florian, one of our DPs came in one day and Auntie came in the other day. And it was so much fun. The actors and I would talk about how like we hadn't smiled this much on set till the title sequence. And it felt so much like this relief. Yeah, you can feel that joy in it. And and did certain actors get to interact that weren't necessarily in many scenes together? Like it felt like it felt very um, energized, I think. Well, it's because of the time periods, you know, past and present never meet, right? Mm-hmm. I actually don't think I realized that because I saw all of them. I didn't realize that, for example, like Mina never saw her other two sunches. It was mm-hmm. the first time the three of them met was on the title sequence. And that felt just really like we all got chills on set seeing that. It was there were so many hugs being like, oh, my God, I'm you. No. And it was a lot of fun. We're almost out of time. But I do want to ask you if you went back to the the early days of this project, what you would tell that version of yourself as you were just starting out on this? You know what? I don't think I could tell myself. I don't think I would warn myself of anything. You know, you're sort of wondering, like, what would you do alt-history-wise? How could you have changed? What would you have done to make it easier? You know, I hope season two is not like this. (laughs) But I think season one could have only have been made like this, if that makes sense. A part of me is very aware that this is lightning in a bottle, what we have. And season two, I'm very aware that everything changes in season two. The expectations change. um, The cast changes, right? Mm -hmm. But in season one, there was such an innocence to all of us, a naivete about what we were doing. The pandemic definitely was a part of that. And so I don't think we could have made this without those circumstances. That does it for today's interview episode of Little Gold Men. We'll be back on Thursday with our full roundtable crew uh, to talk about everything Emmy season and everything else going on. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at Little Gold Men, or please keep texting with us on subtext. We love hearing from you. This week's episode was edited and produced, as always, by Brett Fuchs. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.